Um, we're in a series on 1 Corinthians. We're in chapter 7 this morning, if you picked up on that from the very long reading. Uh, and and uh, the series that we're talking about is called Back to Life. It is, it is exploring this letter of 1 Corinthians that Paul writes to a church that he planted in Corinth, Greece, and to all the new Christians that were there um, who are just fresh out of Greco-Roman religion. And um, we're exploring what it looks like for us to to live into the new life of the kingdom, to live into resurrection life. And this chapter is about marriage and relationships, but really it's about sex. And so we're going to talk about sex this morning. Man, this is so weird. We've got all kinds of parents here this morning. How did I look into this? My goodness. The question that confronts us in this text is, how does a vision of Christian sexuality speak to the world that we live in? And that's the question I want to think about. Let me give you four scenarios. Um, First scenario is a single woman who's a Christian. And she wants very much to get married. Um, she's, she would love to find a mate, to settle down, to share her life with that person. And she has lots of Christian friends who repeatedly say things to her like, like oh, I, we're just going to find you the right guy. We're going to get you married. Don't you worry. You'll get married someday. Don't worry. And, you know, at first he's like, oh, that's so nice that they would think of me that way. But over time, she starts to wonder, what's the subtext of these comments? Um, and she begins to feel like, man, there's something deficient about me. I am uh, I'm not whole or something because I'm not married yet. How does a Christian vision of sexuality speak into her situation? Or what about a married couple? Um, it's been a long day and, you know, let's let's take the traditional family, traditional. The guy comes home from work. They have dinner. The kids go down. And after after the kids go down, the husband comes into the room. Hey, want to have sex? <laughs> you know, does whatever he does, whatever mojo he knows to do. <laughs> he needs to work on that mojo. <laughs> yeah. I am not going to get through this message. <laughs> yeah. The wife, the wife says, "Babe, I'm so tired. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm so tired. Can, can we make an appointment for tomorrow? Night? I'll be ready then." So, so the husband is like so cool with that. He's like, "Sure, yeah, that's great." Um, Next day, gets up, goes to work. It's a long day, comes home, has dinner. He proceeds to be a jerk to his wife. He's rude to her. He insults her. Kids go to bed. He comes into the bedroom. Hey, babe, you ready to have sex? And she's like, are you freaking kidding me? You, I, you think I'm going to have sex with you after the way that you've treated me all night? Well, but we were, you said that we were... Babe, you got to warm the oven a little bit. You can't treat me that way. And so both of them go to bed frustrated and feeling alone. How does a, a Christian vision of sexuality speak to this married couple? Um, what about the single guy who is entering the dating world? And he has to answer the question, when should I have sex? 
should I follow the, the three-date rule? Wait until the third date. That's apparently a common marker. Should I follow Aziz Ansari, Master of Nuns approach and do the ASAP route as soon as possible? Um, Should I like the girl? Should I wait until I love the girl? How am I supposed to know when it's a good time to have sex? I'm definitely not waiting until I'm 40 because Steve Carell was such a nerd in 40-year-old version. And that's definitely out of the picture, right? How does a Christian vision of sexuality speak to this young man who's entering into the dating world? And finally, um, you got a dad who's reflecting on how do I talk to my son or mom who's wondering, how do I talk to my daughter about sex and relationships? Um, this, this one dad uh, grew up Methodist and the extent of his conversation Um, with his dad was um, one time his dad walked in the room and said, son, um, do you know how to respect a woman? Yeah, yeah, dad. Uh, Okay. And walked out of the room. He later realized that was his sex talk. (laughs) How does a vision of Christian sexuality speak into our lives as parents and what we pass on to our kids? Uh, I'm curious. Um, in this community, if you're new today, we, uh, we have a dialogical conversation in the midst of the message. So when I ask a question, I invite you to talk. Please pipe up, especially today. <laughs> uh, so I'm curious, what, uh, what visions of sexuality are out there? What visions of sexuality um, uh, are around you in your family, in the world you live in? Uh, let let's talk. Let's share. Yes. That sexuality is tied to purity, mm-hmm. um, and um, if you have sex before you are married, you are not pure anymore. But if you have sex while you're married, you are. Yeah. Or if you did. Mm-hmm. Yes. So there's a uh, there's a, a certain way of looking at sexuality that's wrapped up with this with a purity kind of mentality. And you're either pure if you haven't had sex, or you're somehow tainted or damaged goods if you have. Especially, that's taught very strongly to women. Yeah. Yeah. So you're either virginary or you're the flood. Yeah. Yep. Yes. I think in in the world, particularly, sex has been disconnected from emotion and from feelings and relationship. Mm -hmm. It no longer equates relationship, it just is something you do. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, it's damaged that thing that God created because there's no connection between the people mm-hmm. in the world. That's yeah. mm-hmm. real common. So it can be impersonal. It, it's, uh, we're just we're, we're physical creatures, right? It's a, it's a physical act. What's the big deal? Like, and we don't have to have a relationship for this to be something meaningful to us. I'm parroting. Yeah. Yeah. What, mm-hmm. what, you say, what you're saying. I think, yeah. I, I think the internet pornography has had a big impact on the way sex is being viewed and shaped. Yeah, I mean, there's so many layers with pornography. There's 
the objectification thing that goes that goes on, you know, making somebody an object, or if you're viewing, you're viewing objects. Not to mention the sex trafficking and the coercion that often accompanies what is required to make pornography even happen. Right. Yeah. I think it kind of skews the role of men and women in sexual relationships because very men male dominated. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. One more thought, Miles. Uh, Offer the final word, please. Always. Something that strikes me here is is how often, and this is the way I grew up, you know, learning about sexuality is how polarized it is. You're either team absence, which is sort of what the church aligns with, or you're team, you know, pornography or, you know, whatever, unrestricted sex. And, okay, if you're Christians, maybe if you're married in the right section, you can occasionally dip your toe into it for the purposes of procreation. <laughs> that's it. And there is no continuum. There is no, and so we don't have a way as Christians to communicate and to delve into this part of our natural personalities. Um, and so we end up with things where our children learn more about sex and pornography than they do from their parents. Yeah. Because parents don't talk to kids about sex because we're Christians and, and we're not supposed to have sex. Yeah. Know, only in certain contexts. Yeah. Um, and it's hard. And so, so we, we treat this as a very polarized scenario. Yep. I think it's probably more of a continuum. Yeah, that's a great point. Very good. So Paul, in this text, um, and in, in his relationship with the church in Corinth, he's confronted with this very same question that's confronting us for this church that he starts in Corinth. How was a vision of sexuality going to speak to the experiences of new believers in Corinth who um, had very different ideas than he did as a Jewish man about sexuality and sex? Um, In 1 Corinthians 7, he starts by quoting a popular saying among the Corinthian church. In the same way, last week, Ted talked about these different sayings in chapter 6. You know, Paul kind of air quotes them, and then addresses them. He does the exact same thing at the beginning of uh, chapter 7. And the phrase is, it is fine for a man not to touch a woman. That's that's what folks were saying. Uh, It's probably good if people just don't have sex. That was the common thinking. Now, that seems strange for a a pagan city like Corinth. Um, Where would that come from? Why would uh, Corinthian Christians say this? It's probably connected to the practice of sacred celibacy in Greco-Roman piety that was very common at temples in Corinth. It emphasized the need of members to abstain from sex for a period of time, even in marriage. For example, the Latin writer Juvenal, he pictures a scene where wives had to receive forgiveness of sins from the goddess Isis, not the terrorist organization, the Egyptian goddess Isis, Because they had sex with their husbands during a period that was devoted for sacred celibacy. Um, The idea behind this that drove this idea of sacred sacred celibacy. Thank you, Sarah. um, Is that uh, the body, the flesh, this world is a lesser thing than the spiritual reality. And so if you abstain from those bodily acts, you're able to get closer to God. Not altogether different than what um, some Christian conceptions are. Uh, Not necessarily the right ones. So there's this sacred celibacy thing going on in Corinth. And because of this, we can imagine any number of possible scenarios in Corinth um, that were occurring there. Perhaps... 
Corinthians were refusing to have sex with their spouses because of this. Perhaps some were even seeking divorces because it wasn't holy to have sex. Perhaps others were abstaining from sex with their partner, but then secretly kind of having a side hustle over here um, with a prostitute at the temple um, just to, to hide because they couldn't control their sexual desire. And, okay, we, we want to maintain the appearance of holiness, but you know, let's go over here and take care of those sexual needs somewhere else. Perhaps still others thought they should get married and have sex, but uh, they shouldn't get married and have sex, but they're engaged, and yet they, they love their fiancé, they're attracted to them, and so they're having sex, but they're not really committed to each other. Uh, here's a paraphrase of Paul's response to all of this in chapter 7. Um, I'm just going to do verses 1 through 8, uh, and we'll hang on to the other 32 verses. Val already did that. Um, this kind of puts the whole sacred celibacy thing in the context, and it fills in the gaps of what is otherwise really confusing to us when we read these initial verses. And I, I've got it up here so you can follow along. Um, now I'll respond to the matters about which you wrote. You propose that for the sake of holiness and purity, married couples should abstain from sexual intercourse. As you say, it's a fine thing for a man not to touch a woman. But since that is unrealistic, let each husband have sexual intercourse with his own wife. Let each wife have sexual intercourse with her own husband. Marriage creates a mutual obligation for a couple to satisfy one another's needs. Therefore, let the husband give the wife what he owes her. And likewise, let the wife give what she owes to her husband. For the wife doesn't rule her own body. The husband does. Likewise, the husband does not rule his own body. The wife does. Don't deprive one another unless you decide in harmony with one another to abstain from intercourse for a time so that both of you can devote yourselves to prayer. But when the time is up, come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt you. I'm not commanding this practice of temporary abstinence. Rather, I'm saying this as a concession to your proposal. I wish that everyone could be in control of sexual desire like me. Obviously, however, that is not the case. But each person has his or her own gift from God. If not celibacy, then something else. One in one way, another in some other way. To the unmarried widows, on the other hand, I say, it's a fine thing for them to remain unmarried as I am. But if they aren't in control of themselves, let them marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Let me offer five brief observations about Paul's perspective on sex. And then I want you I want to get you to react to them and even to think about those stories, the scenarios that I told in the beginning. And what does Paul's perspective on sex um, have to say about those scenarios? The first observation, healthy sex is good. Um, We can't see this as much in this text. It's kind of behind a little bit because Paul is really agitated with all of the sex that's happening in inappropriate ways. He's like, gosh, can't y'all control yourselves? Um, But Paul is Jewish. And in the Jewish frame, the world and everything in it is good. God creates the world and everything in it. God creates us and he creates our sex drive. He creates us as sexual beings. Sex is good. It's a strong desire that God puts in us and it's not put there by the devil. It's put there by God. It's so strong that it's like a fire and actually burn within us. So we need to treat it like a fire with great care. 
Observation number two, healthy sex is covenantal in nature. Um, It is associated with fidelity and faithfulness. It's meant for two people who have committed to each other. It's permanent for Paul. Um, Thus the until death do you part kind of thing. Observation number three, healthy sex is consensual. Ted talked a lot about consent and respect last week, and so I won't overdo it here. But it is striking to me to notice the mutuality with which Paul speaks. It was radical to say that a, um, a man's body belonged to his wife in a patriarchal world where men believed that the women were their property somehow. And yet, here we have this very equal, mutual thing, a mutual submission to each other, and and husband and wife on the same level. Just as a pro tip for you husbands, don't tell your wife, your your body belongs to me, so let's have sex. Um, She won't respond well to that, I'm going to guess. Um, And that's not what mutual submission looks like. Um, And she also would be well within her rights to say, your body belongs to me too, buddy. So get the heck away from me. Yeah. Uh, Observation number four. Healthy sex is a duty. Um, It's obligatory within a covenant relationship. Um, This kind of chafes us a little bit. It chafes against the modern notion of the sexual autonomy of the individual, where we'd like to say it's my body and I can do whatever I want. Right. Paul would say emphatically, if you're a believer, your body belongs to the Lord first uh, and your body belongs to your spouse. Second and third, it belongs to you. That's the nature of self-giving love. We put others, namely the Lord and our spouse ahead of ourselves. Paul says spouses are mutually obligated to meet each other's sexual needs to the best of their abilities unless they mutually decide otherwise. Now, for Paul to talk about duty and obligation, um, it's not like, oh, I have to do this whether I like it or not. It's devoid of feeling. Uh, That's not the connotation of, of obligation for Paul. Obligation is an extension of love. Uh, Obligation is done in love. It's done in the context of mutual consent and um, and of covenant. So it's not like, again, it's it's not where we'd be like, you owe me this. You know, that's not self-giving love. Right. That's not the character of sexuality that Paul's talking about. Final observation. Healthy sex isn't necessary for all believers. Celibacy and singlehood are a viable option. For Paul, they're the preferred option, right? Uh, um, Not because sex isn't good or should be avoided because it's dirty, but because celibacy frees folks up in the age to come that's broken in to really press in to the mission of God. Um, Paul's really concerned that married folks would be so wrapped up in caring for their families that they're distracted from the mission. And he would like as many people as possible to join him kind of all out in the mission. And so that's his that's his preferred option is singlehood and celibacy. Um, Single people are not any more incomplete than married people are. Let's just say that Um, you're not deficient. If you're single, you are not um, you are not a non-sexual person if you're single. 
Okay, and we'll talk about sexuality um, in just a second. Um, but Paul's also quick to admit that it's not for everybody. He uses the same word as the spiritual gifts talk in First Corinthians 12 to say that celibacy and singlehood, marriage, those are gifts from the Holy Spirit. So whatever gift you receive, receive it as a gift. Steward it as a gift from the Holy Spirit. All right, so how do these observations from Paul, how do they speak into those scenarios we were talking about earlier? Maybe you don't care about those scenarios. How do they speak to you? How do they speak to the world that you're living in? Yeah, and that's why we would say uh, sex is covenantal. That's the positive way of saying that. That that sex um, it 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 lives and breathes. If if sex is like fire, um, you know, it can either run an engine or it can burn a forest down, right? And so uh, so marriage uh, covenant um, is the the engine that sex is to fuel. Yeah. Um, and yeah, when it's when um, when it's outside of that kind of committed relationship, it can it can devastate. It can destroy. Uh, God doesn't want to rob us of anything. He wants to keep us from killing ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Other well, I thoughts. Also, I just want to know, because. I think a lot of times in the church we hear about sex outside of marriage, bad, bad, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. And a lot of times the message that comes is that. It can cause devastation. Things can be ruined, but like God's grace covers. Absolutely. All. So there's nothing that God's like. It's, there's nothing that's excluded from that. Yeah. We've we've made that and we've made divorce into the unforgivable sin that God never says they were unforgivable. Yeah. We we've, we've done it. I think growing up it was kind of like I think it was a scare tactic. But you know, I grew up in the 50s and 60s and. And towards the end of the 60s when everybody was saying do anything you want and, and in the church it's kind of like oh don't do anything you want you'll die yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sure. and you'll die quickly if you don't do it so you know we put these, these uh, burdens on people and make them feel like oh if I do this God is never going to love me again and we need to understand that, that we, we're all human. We all fly at some point. We do, we do things. And those things are, are sins because we're human. And God is not going to just you know, cut us out. Oh, you, you made a mistake. Yeah. It is interesting that, um, you know, Paul says in this text, um, sexuality, um, sex outside of your marriage covenants in Corinth, is rampant. He's, that's what he's addressing. Um, you don't see him shaming them. You know, you don't see him calling them filthy and you know horrible people because of it. He's kind of like a father. He's like, okay, let's get this in line, guys. Like, like let me give you some tips here for how to navigate this. Um, but but he kind of expects it, right? Like he, he uh, he's very gracious with it. He doesn't uh, um, uh, he doesn't wag his fist at them. You know, wag his finger at them. He he gives them some guidelines. Um, you're right. Sex and sexuality is not the 
the uh, irreparable sin that we experience. The grace of God comes to us in that brokenness, just like any other part of our brokenness. Yes, ma'am. I think I like the um, that you pointed out that Paul makes basically human instead of like man and woman same. Um, the same playing mm-hmm. ground because I think um, growing up, I'll try to say me, mine, and I, but I think <laughs> growing up, we, um, I, I was under the impression that it was my responsibility to stay pure, but it was also my responsibility to keep the boys and men around me pure. Yeah. Um, and then, I, and, and that boys and men were uncontrollable, and mm-hmm. that it was my job to um, n- not, you know, make sure that they stayed pure. And that women did not have that drive. Like, mm-hmm. we, it was easier for us, yeah. you know. And then once we were married, it was now our job to keep that satisfied. Right. Like, to, um, you know, purity was out the window, wow. so that's gone. So now it's our responsibility, it's my responsibility to um, feed this fire. I mean, yeah. to make sure that this was this crazy, uncontrollable desire was controlled. <laughs> Um, and that it was, but you know, we, that's how we were taught, that it was like deviant yeah. versus purity, right. you know, wow. and um, to, to make it an equal playing ground, not only in, um, uh, it is, it's refreshing that, it, that he makes it an equal playground by saying that the women have desires too mm-hmm. and have the same, mm-hmm. um, same sexual mm-hmm. makeup. And, and, and that men, men are equally responsible. Equally women. responsible. Yeah. It's freeing, I think, in both things. To say mm. that women also are sexual beings and have sexual desires, and also that men have responsibility for their own bodies as well. Mm. And yeah. so that, there's some things that Paul says that get on my nerves, but yeah. that was yeah. nice. Can I just say, as a, as a white dude that was raised in that same system, um, I'm sorry. That sucks. Like that's a that's a big gear shift. Like to go until you're married, like don't have sex, you're responsible for him. Then to get married and all of a sudden you're you're responsible for him in a different way. Turn it on, it was turned off, now turn it on. Like that that's that's screwed up. Uh, I'm sorry. Sorry. Two more. I, let me take somebody else. Okay. Sure up. Um I also feel like a lot of times we're not really honest about the world that we live in. And I don't know if it's not being honest or if we don't have enough friends who are not Christians, but I think there's tension in the fact that I have a lot of friends who are not Christian who have healthy, vigorous, great sex lives. And I have a lot of married Christian friends who do not. And there's a lot of messages and, and tension and craziness in there. And as a parent... Christians who have these great conversations and they're just mind blown 
they're having sex outside of marriage and they're not <laughs> messed up. Yeah. yeah. And um, so I just, I don't know. Yeah, good word. Mm-hmm. We need to take that into account. Um, all right, I'm going to keep moving. Okay, my two things. All right. All right, come on. One thing, as you become a Christian, you're quite carnal. I mean, we're, we, we accept Christ, and uh, we're carnal when we accept Christ. We're babes in Christ, we're carnal everything. The goal is, as Paul says, uh, to become filled with the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is, one of them is, self-control. Sure. And way back, uh, a couple thousand years before Paul, Solomon wrote, a city, a man that hath not control over his own spirit, is like a city with his walls broken down. Anything can, any, anything can come in and work happen. So we are supposed to have control over our own spirit. And as Christians, we're supposed to have the fruit of the spirit, self-control. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right on. Um, let me make a very quick aside. Um, I feel like Paul puts all of these Easter eggs in his texts that are like completely different subjects, uh, and it really messes the preacher up uh, who's trying to focus on one thing. Uh, but I have to say, as a as a white male. Um, and as a church that meets in a historically black neighborhood, and given the the state of racial um, relations in our country, um, Paul makes a move in this text to talk about if you're a slave, um, remain as you are. And that historically, that that you know, not 200 years ago, that text was used to justify the oppression of a whole group of people. Um, and I just think that's a terribly irresponsible use of this text um, for many reasons. Um, one of which is the institution of slavery in Greco-Roman um, times is very different than the American institution of slavery that's race-based. Um, Greco-Roman slavery is more like indentured servitude. It's like a minimum wage kind of long-term commitment kind of job. I mean, it's not all um, roses and lilies by any means. Um, but it's also very different. It's apples and oranges to the American institution of slavery. Um, and so it's not fair at all, either to prop up slavery with this text or to write off Paul as ethically backwards because he's living in a completely different world than the one that we're living in. And I just want to say that. Like, um, I'm, I'm against that. And I'm against the oppression of any people on the basis of their color or race or ethnicity, uh, people who are made in the image of God. That is all. Uh, let me zoom out. Because we Paul in this text talks about sex a lot. And I want to wrap up by talking about sexuality. Um, because sex and sexuality are related, but they are different as well. Um, at the beginning of my church planning journey with Mission Alive, the resource ministry we worked with, uh, one of the service they, services they provided was to offer you a therapist um, because church planning will uh, eat your lunch and you need to talk to somebody. Um, and so I was meeting uh, one day with Dr. Cook and we were talking about sexuality and how to practice healthy sexuality um, as a church planner and as a spiritual leader. And Dr. Cook said something to me. This is probably 10 or 12 years ago. 
I, I will never forget it because um, it blew my mind. Uh, he says to me, Charles, the more, the deeper you go as a spiritual leader, the more sexual you will become. Uh, sexuality and spirituality are different sides of the same coin. Um, and so there's this, there's a, a correlation between the two. And I thought, what in the heck are you talking about? That is not what I grew up with. I grew up with the more spiritual you get, the less sexual you get. You know, you're holy and pure and you don't have sex. And he's saying, no, the more you connect with God, the more sexual you become. Um, how is that? Uh, there's a guy named Ronald Rollheiser, who's a Catholic theologian, um, who's really helped me to understand this. Uh, so he talks about the difference between sex and sexuality. Sex is the physical act. Sexuality includes sex, but it's much broader. Sexuality is the energy we are born with to connect with the world. It's the drive for love, communion, community, friendship, family, affection, wholeness, consummation, creativity, self-perpetuation, even immorality, joy, delight, humor, self-transcendence. It's the drive within us not to be lonely and to give life to the world in all of the ways we're able to do that. Like a fire, sexuality can bring us life or it can destroy us. It can fuel an engine or it can burn down a forest. Married and single folks alike are sexual. Even Mother Teresa was a sexual person and she expressed it. She channeled her sexuality into solidarity with the poor. Someone once asked Janis Joplin what it was like being a rock star. She said, it's pretty hard sometimes. You go on stage, you make love to 15,000 people, and then you go home and sleep alone. She's expressing how in our sexuality and creativity, we are ultimately trying to make love to everyone. And that may sound pretty hippie, um, sexually liberated, and it is. But it's not much different than what Jesus said in Luke chapter 20, verses 34 and 35. Jesus replied, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. Now, Jesus does not mean we will be celibate in heaven, but rather that we will be married to all. Rollheiser puts it this way. In heaven, everyone will make love to everyone else. And already now, we hunger for that within every cell of our being. Wow. I'm going to bet you never heard that in church before. <laughs> Had it ever occurred to you that our sexuality will be deeply integral to the reconciliation of all things. Now, the immediate question then is, well, um, if in heaven we're going to be making love to everybody, why not just lean into that now and be promiscuous? It's a fair question. 
um, it's obvious that Paul does not take it in this direction. He moves toward fidelity and covenant. Rollheiser addresses that question this way. Only God can sleep with everyone. And thus only in God can we sleep with everyone. And therefore we have two options for anticipating that big embrace that we'll experience in heaven. You can embrace the many through the one in marriage, or you can embrace the one through the many in celibacy. As one of my beloved theology professors was fond to say, stick that in your pipe and smoke it. (laughs) But it's really interesting to think about how does our sexuality come into the age to come? Um, and, And if the trajectory of creation is union with each other and with God, our sexuality is certainly a part of that. It, it's integral to who we are now. And God brings it right into the age to come. Hear the good news, church. We are sexual beings. And that's a good thing. God has given us the desire to connect at a deep level with those around us and to participate in union with God and creation. God is honored by those who are single and celibate. And he's honored by our covenantal Sexual relationships, when you connect uh, with your spouse, when you make love to your spouse, you're experiencing a foretaste of the future. When you connect with others and bring life to the world, you're experiencing your sexuality and a foretaste of the future. And God said it's good. And everybody said, amen. Amen. But he's not saying sexual intercourse. That's a misuse of Matthew, I mean, Luke 24. He said they're equal to the angels. And the angels don't have sexual intercourse. Yeah, I, I am not. So, so I am not uh, trying to fill in the gaps about exactly what everything looks like in the age to come. Um, Jesus' resurrection body is certainly very different than um, his, his pre-resurrection body. There are major differences. Um, Uh, Honestly, I don't know what it will look like or be like. Um, And I don't know what it's like for the angels. Um, I'm just trying to get us to think about what is the trajectory of our world? What is the world of relationships and reconciliation that God is calling us into? And I would love to talk more about it offline afterwards.